I know that you use ESV, but my reading will be from NLT. So if it's a little bit different, it's the uh, same scriptures. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. Sorry. You lived in a world without, uh, sorry. You did not know the covenant, uh, covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in the world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have brought near to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both, group, both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, now all of us can, uh, can come to the Father through the Spirit because of Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all people, with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Amen. Amen. Well, I have another uh, joy. Yeah, please be seated. <laughs> I have another uh, joy and privilege this morning of introducing our special Global Impact Conference speaker, Dr. Peter Chaw. Peter is professor of church, culture, and society at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he has taught since uh, 1997. Prior to this, though, it's most interesting to note that Peter has roots here in Faith Church. For from 1985 to 1986, he was a pastoral intern under our former pastor, John Crocker. In fact, um, during that year, Peter and I shared an office in the old building when I was doing a missions internship. Then from 1985 to 1988, Peter served as campus staff member of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship under the leadership of our late church member, Don Fields. Peter and his wife, Phyllis, have been married for 32 years, and they are proud parents of two adult children, Nathaniel and Elaine. So Peter, come and share God's with us, and I want to say on behalf of Faith Church, welcome home.
Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been nearly 30 years. In fact, my wife Phyllis and I began our uh, family together uh, by getting married in an old sanctuary of Faith Missionary Church back then in 1985. In so many ways, this has been a homecoming experience for me. Now, as we turn to God's Word, would you join me in prayer and asking for God's blessings in our time and His Word this morning? Our gracious Heavenly Father, as your beloved children, we come together before your holy throne and open your precious Word. We pray, O oh God, that your Spirit be our teacher and guide our thoughts as we receive your truth this morning. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So it was about uh, 25 years ago or so, I was a busy PhD student, and I was doing church planting ministry at the same time. So you could imagine how my day-to-day -day schedule was so packed. Well, one evening I happened to be home, and I was having dinner with my family when my son, who at that time was three or four years old, looked at me straight and said, Dad, I think you should get a new job. Ouch. So I asked my son, what new job should I get? Apparently, he's been thinking about this a lot because he had an answer right away. He said, garbage man, Dad. <laughs> I said, garbage man? Why a garbage man? And he said, because garbage man works only on Wednesdays. <laughs> See, as a four-year-old, that's what he saw. That green garbage truck comes to our street only on Wednesday mornings, and wouldn't it be great if my dad had that job? <laughs> of course, as a four-year-old boy, what he saw was true, but what he did not see is the fuller picture, more complete picture of what a garbage man does. Now, seeing the bigger and the fuller picture is such a critical thing and that is especially so for local churches like Faith Church that has been called to bring the gospel to people who do not yet know Christ Jesus when our mission field is changing so rapidly, so constantly. What is God doing in this world? And how do we respond to so many changes that are taking place with the unchanging message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we want to go to Ephesians chapter 2 passage with that question in mind. Now, the passage we read this morning, especially when you look at verses 11 through 13, we see that Paul is addressing a particular challenge that the many early churches of New Testament era was facing. As you know, Jerusalem Church, after Pentecost Sunday, began and launched, and initially it was all Jewish Christians who were part of the gathering. But then as the gospel was being proclaimed, as more lives were being changed, more and more Gentiles also began to respond to the gospel of Jesus and began to join the church. And now the challenge is this. How might Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians relate to one another in a one community of faith? This became a challenge because outside the church, there was a very historically shaped 
distinctive ways that Jews and Gentiles related to one another. Notice on verse 13. Gentiles, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision or uncircumcised, and note that there is a quotation mark around it. Because you see that term, uncircumcised or uncircumcision, was not merely talking about are you circumcised or not, but it had a particular social meaning that often the Jews used in referring to Gentiles, that they are outsiders, that they're unclean, that they're barbarians. Often this term, uncircumcised, had that meaning attached to it. On the one hand, on the Jews, it was an expression of their pride that we are not that. But then as they looked at Gentiles, yes, you are that. We're told often when Jews got together in their synagogues, one of the common prayers they offered to God is God of a prayer of thanksgiving, in which he began often by going like, thank you, O Lord, that I'm a human being and not an animal. And then immediately after that, they would say, and thank you, O God, that I am circumcised and not uncircumcised. And over a period of centuries, this kind of practices had a cumulative effect, and Jews and Gentiles, there was a thickening of the wall of hostilities, animosities, distrust being built between these people groups. And now that they're in the same church, how are they to relate to each other is what Apostle Paul is addressing here. Notice on verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because of what happened on the cross, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, we no longer have circumcised and uncircumcised. We no longer have that division because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people groups and not just for Jews. That salvation is for all peoples. If you remember correctly, even beginning of Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram to himself and began a new human race, God's intention was all along not just to save the Jews, but to bring his good news of salvation to all people groups. God's gospel is for all peoples. In 1985, as Steve mentioned, I had a privilege of being a pastoral intern at this church. Uh, Phyllis, uh, at that time, was doing her uh, graduate school training in Indianapolis, and she was already attending this church, and I just finished seminary training and joined her. We got married, and as we were beginning our newlywed life, this became our church. Now, up until that point, I grew up all my life in a Korean immigrant church. My dad was a minister. And the mission that our Korean immigrant church was, was uh, so uh, uh, prioritized was how, to, how do we reach out to other Korean immigrants in the United States, sharing gospel with them, and invite them to, to, to our church and so forth. 
It's an important work, but that was my understanding of the mission of the church. And then I came to faith. During those three years of attending and worshiping here, one of the invaluable lessons that God has taught me, not just through the scriptures, but also through the actions of this congregation, that the gospel is for all people groups. Yes, there might be several families that would be sent by this church to go to the ends of the earth, but everyone is involved in God's global mission that we are to pray for our missionary families. We are to generously support financially these missionary families. That just was deeply ingrained in me. So later, when we returned to Chicago, when later I became a church planning pastor, one of the things that I emphasized to my congregation members is that we will pray toward and we will aim to send our best to overseas missions. And that rest of the congregation will be deeply involved in a God's global ministry because the gospel is for all peoples. Thank you so much. For as a congregation, God has used you, not just for our family, but I'm sure many of the families that went through this congregation, deepening within our mind and heart, that gospel is not just for me, Gospel is not just for people who look like me, but the gospel is for all people. Now, I want to fast forward 30 years later. This weekend, as I came down and had interactions with many of the uh, members of this congregation, I am seeing now the mission field around Indianapolis, around this church, has changed. In many ways, God is now bringing the world to us, to United States, to Indianapolis, particularly to Nora. Who would have thought that so many uh, refugee families would settle right in the backyards of this church? So many immigrants now settling nearby this church. And so I got to hear exciting news from the ministry of a FIAC teaching English to many of these refugee and immigrant families, and the ministry of a mosaic team trying to find creative ways to bring the gospel to internationals who are settling around here. And Iglesia de Fe ministry reaching out to a Spanish-speaking population using the facility of this church, but also collaborating with faith church. Wow, these are some really exciting new things God is doing in and through this church. I know immigration lately has been on all kinds of news and social media, and often it is politicians who seem to be dominating how to talk about immigration. But do you also know, missiologically, immigration has a deep impact God is doing something through the movements of all these people, not just the United States, but to Europe and elsewhere. This weekend, I shared with some of the, at some of the gatherings that, as many of you know, Japan is one of those countries where it's been historically very difficult for gospel to penetrate. 
Even after centuries of a mission work, do you know that in Japan, less than 1% of people in Japan go to church regularly? But did you also know that among Japanese Americans, up to 35% of Japanese Americans attend church regularly? Now, I also have a younger brother who last uh, 14, 15 years had served as a missionary in Central Asia, Uzbekistan first for about seven, eight years, and then Kyrgyzstan for another seven, eight years with a mission agency called Pioneers. Now, he's back in the United States last three, four years, working with a ministry called Crescent Project, reaching out to Muslims who are now immigrants in the country, and he's working in Fairfax, Virginia area, right outside Washington, D.C. And what James shares with us is that, as you know, doing missions work in a countries like Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan is so difficult because becoming a Christian is so costly for those converts. They will get ostracized from their own family, and often they cannot find meaningful employment because they are blacklisted as Christians. But in the United States, many of these Muslim individuals and families, they're now hearing the gospel in a different ways. They're far more open to consider studying the scriptures and coming to church. And James says, I don't know if American church realizes what an opportunity God is giving us again because of these Movements of people coming and going. I wonder if the next, if you will, chapter of Faith Church, this church that has this distinctive DNA code in its calling, that the gospel is for all people, that's what has in many ways shaped and 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 fortify the ministry of this church, I wonder if that next chapter is for this church to partner with other churches, perhaps, in more effectively bringing the gospel of Jesus to many of these families that are settling in and around Indianapolis, particularly around this community. Gospel is for all people. And then from there, Apostle Paul moves into the next focus, and this is now going to the core of the gospel. And he reminds Jews and Gentiles in the church why you should relate differently to one another than how you might have related to one another outside a church is because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier and dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, some theologians call this double reconciliation. 
In this passage, clearly, once again, Apostle Paul points out what Jesus had accomplished on the cross is that on the one hand, he reconciled us with our God above vertically. Romans chapter 9, before we knew Christ, we were enemies of God, rebelling against God, disobedient to God. But because of Jesus' work of reconciliation on the cross, now we are beloved children of God. That is a full reconciliation. But then, Apostle Paul says, but then that is not the only work of accomplishment Christ has accomplished on the cross. In today's passage, he explicitly and clearly points out that the second reconciliation is that on his work of salvation on cross, Jesus also tore down another wall of hostility. And this one is the wall of hostility that divided people groups. That Jesus took that one down as well. And therefore, because now of what Jesus had done on the cross, because you are fully reconciled with God above vertically, and at the same time now Christ has tore down the wall of hostilities existing among different people groups, you are now one. See this beautiful symbol of our faith? Cross. It is simply an intersection of two lines, isn't it? One vertical, one horizontal, in some ways visually reminding us of what Jesus has accomplished on that cross. Notice, therefore, reconciliation is not goal for us to achieve. Instead, it is a gift God is offering to us. It's something that's already accomplished, and he invites us to steward this gift, live into that reality. In 1993, I was invited to speak at Urbana Mission Convention, and I'm sure if some of you have been to this triannual student missions convention that used to be held at University of Illinois and Urbana campus, but now it has moved to St. Louis. And that particular year, they invited me to speak on uh, campus evangelism. But you remember 1993, that was a year after uh, 1992 when the uh, LA riot happened. You remember that incident? For a whole week, South Central of Los Angeles was burned down. Many human lives lost. And if you remember that particular incident, that racial riot began initially because of the conflict between Korean merchants in Los Angeles and African-American residents in the community. Now, I'm a Korean-American. And when that incident happened on our campuses, it immediately pitted black students against Korean-American students, not just in the campus, but in our Christian university group as well. We were trying to work through, in our faith in Christ, as a children of God, how do we work out this reconciliation? And I brought that message partly because that's what we were wrestling with that in order for our campus evangelism to go forward, we need to, as God's people, show to the world how we might do this work of reconciliation 
which Christ has accomplished already on the cross. Now, what I did not know was that that particular year, churches in Japan sent one of their largest delegates of Japanese Christian college young students to Urbana. I did not know that, but they came and they heard this Korean-American person preaching from God's word about the reconciliation need to be displayed by the Christians for the whole world to see the power of the gospel. And somehow Holy Spirit worked in their hearts about the, that reconciliation that the Japanese Christians had to engage in, and that was around 1980s and 90s, there was a particularly period of a hostility between Japan and Korea. Now, some of you may remember from modern history that Japan had, for 30 year, 36 years, colonized Korea. And there had been some brutal things that had happened. And a lot of these stories were coming out for some reason in 1980s and 90s and just really um, created an a even deeper sense of animosity between Korea and Japan. Well, after Urbana was done, there were about 500 international delegates got together to have their own time. And it was during that time, on a final plenary session, one of the Japanese delegates asked the university staff worker who was uh, facilitating the plenary session if we could have two minutes of the plenary time. And this staff worker, who was a friend of mine, did not know what that request was about, but granted it. Well, when the final plenary session came, there's a Japanese uh, woman, uh, college student, who was a spokesperson for their team, went up to the podium and gave a signal. And all the Japanese delegates, 40 or 50 of them, got up and went to the walls around that room. And then they asked Korean delegates there to stand up. Well, not knowing what this was about, but they stood up. And then this Japanese woman read a prepared statement in which she said, our nation has done grievous things to the people of Korea. And instead of coming clean and, and confess what we have done to Korea, our government has went backward and in fact began to rewrite the history of what had happened. And as Christians, we want to repent on behalf of our government, and in fact, on behalf of our fathers. And in the name of Jesus, we want to ask forgiveness from our Korean brothers and sisters who are here. I was not there, but they said that the whole room was stunned, and many actually were so moved by it and cried, because what happened was, as she finished reading it, all the Japanese delegates dropped to the floor and this is their sort of cultural expression of penitence, they would bow toward the Korean delegates who are standing there. That whole expression was just one of those of a deep remorse and repentance that Japanese delegates were offering. Well, providentially, right after that program, the Korean worship team was to close out the whole time in leading worship. So when that time came, the Korean worship band leader said, you know, I want to say something to our Japanese brothers and sisters. And then he said this. 
we also need to repent to you. Because whenever we hear how difficult it is for Japan to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, often Korean Christians felt, well, God is judging you for all the past sins of yours. That is why your nation is not turning to Christ. It's as if even taking a delight in that situation, and we want to repent that. And we need to pray with you for the salvation of Japanese people and not still harboring that resentment against you. Wow. Well, that night, Japanese and Korean delegates got together, and what was supposed to be just brief moments of saying goodbye to each other turned into all night of prayer. Reconciling because of what Jesus had done on the cross. Coming out of that, they formed a, a partnership between Korean and Japanese Christian communities or the ministries and recruiting now Korean students every summer to go to Japan to work with Japanese Christian students in sharing the gospel on their university campuses so that non-Christians would see this odd picture of Korean and Japanese students paired up and going and talking to non-Christians about love of Jesus. You know, our nation right now is continually caught up in the turmoils of a racial strife and division. In fact, Reverend Billy Graham, often in a public setting, mentioned this challenge of racism is one of the biggest challenges the American church continue to face. I'm serving in Chicago there is a racial tension that's on the front page of our newspaper just about every day. How might the gospel of Jesus Christ speak into this pain? In what ways all the people of God from different racial and ethnic groups come together to show that Christ has reconciled us to not only God above, but with one another so that we can display more powerfully the power of Jesus. Then finally, we're going into verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Consequently, because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you now belong to the same household, same family. Now, back then in biblical days, when he says family, it's not like our modern-day family of a mom and dad and two kids, not that nuclear family. What they're talking about is oikos, that extended family of 70 to 100 people, often including servants in it as well. But once you're part of the same oikos, you're intensely loyal to one another you would even be willing to die for a fellow member of your oikos. Apostle Paul is here deliberately using this strong language. Jews and Gentiles, 
I don't want you to see yourselves as, as now being a good friends with each other. No. You're part of the same oikos because you have one father. I shared with you earlier that Phyllis and I got married at this church. Phyllis, like myself, is a Korean-American. But culturally speaking, she comes from a very different background than, than I am. I grew up in a very traditional immigrant home. Phyllis, on the other hand, born and raised in, in the United States. In fact, she grew up most of her life in LaPorte, Indiana. So culturally speaking, she was more Hoosier than anything else, right? <laughs> and she only spoke English, whereas my parents only spoke Korean. So as we were dating, when the time came for me to introduce her to my family, I, I began to realize how much of a challenge this is going to be. So I remember telling her, okay, Phyllis, when you come to my home, the first thing you need to do, the very first thing you need to do, is you just walk up to my mom and dad, and then you give them a big bow, like 45 degree angle down, and then count one, two, and three before you come up. We even practiced that a few times. <laughs> but that day, when Phyllis came out to Washington, D.C. to visit my family, I brought her from the airport, and there, in fact, my mom and dad came out of the house to greet her. All these things that we practiced, she completely forgot. So when she walked up to my mom and dad, it was my mom first, she approached my mom and hugged her. Now, in a very reserved Asian culture, you don't do that to a stranger, <laughs> and you certainly don't do that to your elder. I remember looking at my mom, and she was completely surprised by this move, and she was just really stiff, emotionless. Well, then Phyllis moved on to my dad, and my dad just saw what happened. So he just extended his arm <laughs> and had a nice, hearty handshake. Well, the rest of the day went much better. Well, that evening, or next day actually, we had to now say goodbye to Phyllis. I had to take her to the airport. And this time, during this time of saying goodbye, my mother stepped up to Phyllis and gave her a hug. My sister, who was standing next to me, said something like, I didn't know she could do that. Because <laughs> that was not a language of love for us. But I remember that image of my mother now using Phyllis's language of love, embracing her, and I was thinking, yes, Phyllis is now part of the family. She is embraced in. There is a well-known Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian-American theologian who wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace in 1996. When that book came out, it was celebrated as the book of the year by Christianity Today. Now, in that book, Miroslav Volf points out one way to talk about sin and its consequence is our human fallen nature to exclude others, particularly exclude other people who don't look like me, who are not like me, from my life. But then, as a new creation in Christ, through the help of the Spirit, one of the things that Christians 
as a follower of Jesus, are now enabled and empowered to do is to embrace others and other Christians into one's life. Therefore, exclusion and an embrace. And then he talks about embracing others in this way. Embracing another person takes two steps, he said. First is to open your arms like this. I mean, after all, how do you embrace another if you do this? But then this gesture of opening up your arms signifies two things. One is that of humility. I am not by myself, or we are not by ourselves, complete. And because of you have something different than I have, you are entering into my life would make it rich or further enriched. That's a humility. But then the second uh, signifying thing about opening your arm like this is actually your willingness to take a risk. This is, this is a vulnerable position. This is not a self-protecting position. Right? And then he says, the second act of embracing another person is to now gently bring your arms around that person. And then he says this, and it's at that point, our human tendency is to give that person what Miroslav Volf called the oppressive bear hug of assimilation. <laughs> that I will have you in my life as long as you think like me, you like the same food I like, we worship the way we, I like to worship, you vote the way I do. Unless you do that, you cannot be part of my life. Well, then he says, well, that goes exactly against why we need to embrace others because they have something that I don't have. Embracing others. And as we more and more embrace others, that we become more and more representing God's diverse kingdom in myself. I am thankful to Faith Church and what God is doing here because you are proclaiming the gospel faithfully and you're shaping the people of God in and through the word of God. And as your ministry of a transformation continues, more and more people around the church will be drawn to Faith Church. And in fact, as God is at work in this church, more and more who are coming from different ethnic and racial backgrounds will want to come visit and be part of this church and worship with you. And at that point, my question is, will you be looking at them politely as guests? Or will you be embracing them to be part of the family? As we express the intentionality of now wanting to be what kingdom of God is already, I believe God will continually work in and through this church in such a way, this double reconciliation, that cross, signifies, become more and more visible and experienced through this community of the gospel. May that be the work of God that is clearly shown in and through this church. Would you join me in prayers? Our gracious God in heaven,
Lord, I thank you for this local church, Faith Church, through which you have raised so many individuals and so many families to bring your precious gospel to the ends of the earth. And now as this church is faithfully uh, living out its calling, that the gospel is for all people groups. And as more and more people from the different parts of the world are gathering to this community, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant your wisdom, your faith, and your power to this congregation so that it might be an effective witness of Jesus Christ in its own Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, as well as ends of the earth. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.